0: You're listening to the Journey to Launch podcast. How to avoid burnout on your financial journey and charging your worth with Sarah Lee Kane. T
1: minus 10 seconds.
0: Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast with your host, Jamila Souffrant, As a money expert who walks her talk, she helps brave journeyers like you get out of debt, save, invest, and build real wealth. Join her on the journey to launch to financial freedom in, in five, four, three, two, one. Hey, 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 Journeyers. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast. Welcome to another episode. Before we hop into the episode, I want to tell you about today's sponsor. Empower. One of the most asked questions from listeners that I get is, how can I save more and reach my goals? And I usually reply with, you have to make it easy and automate it as much as possible. So I'm always on the lookout for solutions for you to do just that, make saving easy and automatic. Today's sponsor, Empower, that's E-M-P-O-W-E-R, is an awesome mobile app that makes saving and managing your money the easiest thing you can do all day. For starters, Empower has an automated savings feature. You can simply tell the app your weekly savings target and every day Empower studies your income and spending and automatically knows when to move the right amount of money into your savings account where you're less likely to spend it. It's called autosave. Just set it and forget it. You even get access to a human coach that you can text for personalized finance questions. Download Empower, that's E-M-P-O-W-E-R in the App Store or Play Store. I downloaded the app myself because you know that I have to give things a try before I recommend them and I really like it. It's super simple and easy to get started. And for journeyers, that's you, you get $5 when you use the offer code journey and reach your savings goals. Visit empower.me slash journey for more details. Now, before we hop into all this amazing goodness that's about to go down, I gotta just let you know. So first off, you may be a new listener to this show because I got a lot of growth and downloads and subscribers because Apple Podcasts featured me on their Apple Podcast homepage. So Apple Podcasts featured me as a featured show in the month of February. They featured me as a Black History Makers show and they also featured me in the new and noteworthy section of their homepage. So that, as you can imagine, really helped with downloads. And for an independent podcaster like myself, there's no big machine behind me. It's really all me with the help that I hire to help bring this to light. That means a lot. That means more people can find me. So maybe you're new to the show and you're like, okay, I'm digging this, but I need to learn more. Where do I start, Jamila? Like there's a lot of episodes. So I wanted to kind of just give you some episodes you can start with after you listen to this one. Oh, and by the way, I use the term journeyer a lot. That's what I call anyone on the path to financial freedom with me. I call you a journeyer. So when I say that, that's what I'm referring to. Any journeyer now that wants to kind of go back and listen to some of maybe more of the popular episodes or things that may pique your interest, I have a list for you. So first, I'm gonna give you the most downloaded episode of the podcast so far, and that was episode 64. So this is for you if you kind of just wanna go back and like listen to the top downloaded podcast episodes and see what piques your interest. Episode 64 was your guide to becoming a minimalist with Joshua Becker. So you can check that out by going to journeytolaunch.com slash episode 64. The next top downloaded podcast episode was your guide to financial freedom and having all the money you'll ever need with Grant Sabatier. That was episode 82. Grant has actually been on the podcast twice, but this was episode 82 and then it really good. So check that out at journeytolaunch.com slash episode 82. The next one you should check out, a story that you can maybe relate to is you should check out episode 86. I interviewed Ashley Copeland. So I used to do these journey or profile interviews where I interviewed people who were on the journey, who were journeyers, listening to the show, what they were doing with their finances. And Ashley Copeland has an amazing story, episode 86, because she talked about owning real estate and having a net worth of 100,000 without a six-figure income. So I know a lot of people love that episode, so it was highly downloaded. And then the other one I'll give you that you should listen to if you're really, really new to me and my content is episode two. So yeah, I'm going all the way back to the beginning. Episode two, I talked about how my husband and I saved $85,000 in one year. And so I break down how we did it, what accounts we saved it in, and then you hear more of my backstory. So go to journeytolaunch.com slash episode two. Now I know I just rattled off a bunch of websites and you may be driving or didn't have the time to write that down, but I will link all of these in the episode show notes for this episode. So essentially the episode show notes, when I refer to it, I'm really just saying, if you go to journeytolaunch.com slash episode 142 in your browser, or depending on where you're listening to this, you'll be able to see all the links that I mentioned. And so I'll link them all there. Without further ado, though, let's get into what we're going to be talking about in this episode. So today's guest is Sarah Lee Kane of Beyond the Dollar. Sarah Lee Kane is a finance writer and author whose work has appeared in places like Bankrate, Business Insider, Redbook, and more. She blends practical tips and mindset strategies. For those trying to change their financial life. She also integrates physical, spiritual, and mental wellness so that money becomes a tool to enhance your life. So I love when people are able to bring together the practicality, but then the also emotional part of money. It's all about that. And so Sarah and I are going to go into her background on how she became financially free, how she was able to move abroad and save money, how she was able to build a six-figure net worth and also a six-figure business. So she's a writer, a freelance writer, and she's doing very well for herself. So for those of you who are looking to start a side hustle, maybe you're a writer or you want to understand how you can grow your business so you can do it full time. And by the way, she's a mom juggling all this. This is a great episode to listen to. Okay, now, without further ado, let's hop into this conversation with Sarah. Okay, back with another I know will be a great conversation. But I want to bring on my fellow personal finance friend, Sarah Lee Kane, on the podcast, because not only is she an amazing writer in the personal finance space and business owner, but she has her own really cool journey to financial freedom and thoughts about how to live holistically and enjoy the journey, which is what we all want to do. So I thought this would be a good conversation to have. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks so much, Jamila. It's always a pleasure speaking with you.
0: So one of the things that I know you talk about, you make sure comes across in the work you do is the journey itself, right? And so many of us and people are at different levels, right? Paying off debt, trying to increase their income. This concept of financial independence and freedom is essentially what draws them in. And then they're on the journey and like, holy moly, (laughs) there's so much to do. Right. And so I want to start with one, some of the things you were able to do in your finances, like you've done some amazing things also, and you didn't come from money. Not that that's a bad thing if you came from money, but you really had to work with what you've had. So can you explain where you are now, how much you've been able to earn as a finance writer, right? That's your main thing. And, and you're a mom. So many things, so many things to, to go through.
1: I know my story. I think as people dig more into it, they're like, wait, what happened? Wait, where were you? I'm sure we'll get all into that. So as far as where I'm at now, I've been doing freelance writing in the finance industry for about three years now, full time. But overall, I've been doing it for about seven years. So not all of it was finance writing, but for the last three years, I've been definitely focused on that. Right now, my income, I crossed a six-figure mark last year, which was very exciting. Uh, this year, I've already crossed that. So hoping that trend continues for the next couple of years or at least a foreseeable future. I'm actually a Canadian living in the U.S., lived in a bunch of different countries and traveled to a bunch of different countries. So my previous 9 to 5 was actually in the teaching profession. So I specifically chose that profession, which we'll get into, I'm sure, where I can travel. I decided this at the very young age, that travel was very important to me. And so I've been traveling since I graduated college by myself, where I met my husband. He's from the U.S., which is why we're here. So in terms of the geo-arbitrage stuff. I've been able to amass over six figures worth of n- a net worth, my husband and I, based on the fact that we lived in another country that had a very low standard of living and our salaries were equivalent to what we had in the US. As far as what we're working on, it's really a lot of the lifestyle stuff because now that we sort of have the income and the net worth and the investments kind of all fairly at a good stage, my husband and I are really looking at how can we make our lifestyle even more flexible than what it is? What else do we want to envision? And that's, that's currently where we're at.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so many things, right? So you were raised in Canada? Yes. Raised in Canada. And so you went to school in Canada. Mm-hmm. It's so funny how many, I have so many teachers that listen to the podcast and I love talking to people who got their teaching degrees or are teachers that have also parlayed into something else because there's so many opportunities out there because I know it's such a hard job. My husband's a teacher, so I know like the stories he come home and tells me. But in general, there are a lot of opportunities if you want to pivot and not be a teacher anymore and or use the skill set because, you know, to teach, especially rowdy kids or maybe nice kids, whatever, that's a skill. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, if you can transfer uh, teaching and being able to show people out in the world something and help them do something different, it's a very profitable skill that a lot of people don't have. So I love talking to teachers. So you went to school to be a teacher. Did you like graduate and teach? So when you said you moved overseas, where did you live? What were the mechanics of all that?
1: Sure. So I graduated, gosh, back in 2006. And I had always wanted to go overseas. So the reason I knew about the fact that I could carry this career anywhere with me, this was obviously pre-internet and pre-digital nomad, was I had a few teachers that actually ended up doing teacher exchanges when I was in grade school and high school. And so I knew that the potential was there. And I knew like, okay, if I want to make some sort of steady income and go overseas, that's what I'm going to do. And so the intention after I graduated was to to take my teaching career overseas anyways. I did try to apply for jobs in Canada. It just didn't work out. It, It was like wrong timing, all of that. But then an opportunity popped up for Australia and I thought, okay, let's go to Australia that's not a cheap country, (laughs) pretty expensive, but went there for about almost a year. And then I was like, I don't really know what I want to do. So I went back to Canada. And then I ended up in South Korea upon the recommendation of my friend for a year. And then very randomly, when I was applying for jobs in South Korea for other parts of the country, I got a job offer for China. And so I thought, okay, it's a two year contract. If I hate it, I'll leave. I ended up staying in China for about eight years. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Wow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And were you married at this point? Or were you a partner with you? Or how did that work?
1: So I met my husband actually in China. So we both worked at the same school together for a little while. And then we got married about nine years ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, so you taught eight years. So is this like teaching English to Chinese students? Or what kind of teaching job was it?
1: This is for certified teachers. So it's at international schools. And so what it is, it's these are schools geared towards expat children. And so the curriculum is very much the same as what you would find either in the U.S. or England or, I guess, Western country, quote unquote. So those are the schools I taught at. Mm
0: hmm. And while you were in China, did you have student loan debt? How were you with your finances when you moved over there? And were was your husband on the same page with you at that moment? Like, how did you now start to shape your finances and intentionally save money while doing all that?
1: So part of the reason why I went to South Korea was that I could pay off my debt. I had about $9,000 of credit card debt. I had a little bit of student loan debt left, but one of the advantages to Canada back then back then, I'm not sure now, is that student loans or actually tuition was pretty cheap compared to what you have in the US. So I didn't have a whole lot. So I was able to pay off all my debt while I was in South Korea for, you know, that year. When I met my husband, he had a little bit of student debt left, but both of us wanted to make sure that before we got married, that we would be totally debt free. That was just something we didn't want to bring into the relationship. It wasn't that we didn't trust each other with Money. It was just we knew that that was something that we took on ourselves individually, and that we wanted to take care of it ourselves individually.
0: So now you're living in China. Or you're teaching in China. How did you use that as ways to get ahead? Like, did you know? So, like, living in China at that moment, if you could take yourself back, did you know that you wanted to come back to the to Canada, the United States? Like, what was your plan? Did you think you were going to teach forever? What were you thinking?
1: Our plan was actually teach forever and then figure out where we wanted to retire, like traditionally at, at 65, because the contracts were really good. <laughs> and I'll just describe one of the ones that we had. So we had free housing. So they they would subsidize housing and we lived in a, a pretty nice neighborhood. We walked everywhere. The school was close enough where we could take a bus maybe for five minutes, a five minute bus ride, or we can walk. And so there was no transportation costs. Healthcare was fully covered by the employer. We made about the equivalent of what a teacher would make around the US. So I think at my, at my highest, maybe like 40, 45 grand, maybe 50 grand, depending on the exchange rate. And so it was really good. The standard living was super low. Most of the major expenses are paid for. And we had about 14 to 16 weeks worth of paid holidays. Wow. Mm -hmm. And so travel within Asia was ridiculously cheap. And so we were just living, a lot of people were like, you were like living the FI lifestyle. Like that was pretty dang good. I'm like, yeah. And so we did not want to give that up.
0: Mm -hmm. What made you stop doing that? And I guess before we jump into that, for teachers who are wondering, so by the time your episode comes out, I had a couple of teachers come on and talk about just teaching overseas and how they were able to do that. But I'd love to hear any advice you have for someone listening and saying, well, that sounds like a good deal. I'd love to do that for a couple of years. So how would they get into that?
1: So there are different tiers of international schools. So if you are a certified teacher, I think they call them like A, B, C, D tiers. And so A tiers are like your top, like you get ridiculous contract, like a really good one, The kids there are pretty top-notch, they might need to be tested in. So you have those and then you have your D schools, which may be locally owned. They're probably new. Maybe the standards aren't as high or the salary isn't as great, etc. So what I recommend is you just take a look at what your experience is and then try to look at what their minimum requirements are. So if you want to get into a really top tier school, it doesn't mean that you have to have a lot of experience. Most will require like at least two years of teaching experience before you apply. But those ones are probably better if you go through a recruiter. So there's a few. I think there's TIE, there's Search Associates. Those I think you have to pay. I think Search Associates, you probably pay like 100 or 200 bucks to be a a member of some sort. And then they will send you recruitment fairs. And so if you can physically go to these there's ones all over the world i think there's ones in like toronto i'm sure there's some in the us mostly in asia but if you can go to those and meet somebody in person your chances are probably better at getting jobs like that but don't feel like you have to have a lot of experience like when i first started teaching i didn't have a whole lot of experience and i guess i in some ways i lucked into the positions that i got but at the same time if you can convince the employer who's usually the principal that is doing the hiring that you will stay <laughs> one of the the main things is like they don't want a high turnover rate because it's really expensive to bring someone over overseas so if you can convince them you can stay that you'll do what you need to do to get the job done most likely you'll be hired if you're not a certified teacher there's nothing wrong with going teaching the ESL route there are some pretty high paying jobs in that but just know that your contract might not be as good as someone who's a certified teacher. So you might have to pay your own way with housing, you might not get the visa help. So those are the few hurdles that you might have to go through with that.
0: And will they bring you over if you have like family? So like you want to bring over your husband and your children and pay for some of that too?
1: The A tier schools? Yes. The lower the tier schools, it really depends. So one of the schools I worked at, what wasn't going to pay for any of that. So I had to if, if my husband wasn't already employed in China, I would have had to pay out of pocket for for them.
0: Do you speak Mandarin or was the second language helpful? You can go there without having to know another language or that language of the country.
1: My Chinese is passable. <laughs> Partially, I think people humored me because I I am Chinese, like my parents are Chinese. And so I, I try to learn a few phrases here and there. In China, depending on where you live, in the major cities, you can probably get away with staying in the expat communities and get away with not speaking much Chinese or hiring a translator, depending on what you need to do. But it's always helpful if English isn't the main language to learn a few phrases.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So you said you did. this was like a perfect gig. You were like not trying to give this up. So why did you give it up?
1: Partially, we found out we were pregnant or I found out I was pregnant, not we. <laughs> but my husband did have a hand in that, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so we then had to really consider what our lifestyle was gonna be like overseas. So one of the things we really were concerned about in China was the food safety concerns in terms of like daycare. There it really isn't that. I mean, we hired a nanny, which which is fine, but we wanted more social emotional skills, I guess we wanted to develop in, in our son. We wanted to raise him somewhere where they mainly spoke English just because that's where how most of his families would communicate. So we and international schools cost a lot like the good ones cost a lot and so we were really seriously concerned like what what we wanted out of our our lifestyles um were we willing to stay and kind of see how it goes or did we want to make a go of it in in north america whether it was canada or the u.s right and mostly because our our son then can be closer to his grandparents and aunts and uncles and things like that and so ultimately we decided on the u.s uh, funnily enough because it was easier for him to get American citizen than it was Canadian citizenship. And so we were like, okay, let's do that. If we want to move to Canada, we can figure that out. We'll make it to the US. And so that really was the main catalyst for it. It was really difficult, I will admit, to to give up teaching career overseas for a little while because of money and the lifestyle was that good.
0: Mm-hmm. So you moved to then Florida. What made you pick Florida?
1: So we initially moved to North Carolina. And the reason was my husband had to figure out his teaching license stuff. So his old employer, not sure what happened, but kind of messed his teaching license up. And so we were like, let's just get a job in the U S for me. It was a little bit more difficult because my teaching license isn't, isn't equivalent to the U S. And so we were like, let's just figure out if my husband, get a nine, a job somewhere at a school, whatever state. And then once we get there, he can work for a year. If we like it, we can stay. If we hate it, we go somewhere else. And so the plan was, Again, whatever job he would get accepted at. My plan was let's just take freelance writing. I'm earning a bit of side hustle income because at this point I did did start a, a freelance writing side hustle. I'm like at this, point I'm like okay, let me do that. At least I'll bring some money in. Then I can figure out the teaching side of things. And it's also good because then, as my son is adjusting, I have a more flexible schedule. Like I can kind of deal with that. So we did went go to North Carolina. We ended up not liking it <laughs> for for different reasons and then very finally enough as my husband was job hunting i thought wouldn't it be hilarious if we got a job offered in florida because we talked about wanting a house by the beach and then the next week he got a call from a school in florida yeah
0: wow okay so you talked about side hustling and writing so what made you pick writing as your side hustle were you always good at writing or how did that come about
1: i was bored one day, I think I got tired of scrolling through Pinterest. And I thought there's got to be something else I can do. And so I went on in like a Google black hole of sorts. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people can relate. And so I stumbled upon a website called Be a Freelance Writer. And I was like, Oh, that's so cool. You can get paid to write blogs. I had no idea. And so I remember pitching to like six different blogs, ideas, and then five of them responded with yes. And so I thought, okay, cool. And my first gig was like writing about zombies for $50. And I remember it was like, this is amazing. You get paid. So anytime I'm bored, I can just find some way to pay, pay $50 to write about zombies. That's amazing. And so that's really how it started. It was never intended to be anything full time until I moved to the US.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, do you have to like when you were writing about zombies, how good of a writer do you have to be? Because that's one of the things I do want to work on more. And I do write. I used to write a lot more. I used to think when I was younger, I was going to be a writer. But it's still one of those things. So before we hopped on the call, everyone. So Sarah posted on her Instagram that like her day, her schedule. And one of it was like, okay, talking to Jamila for Journey to Launch. And then the other one's like writing three articles. And then when I spoke to her, she's like, I already wrote two of them. Like, it's only like 11 a.m. Eastern time. And I'm like, how? Because for me, when I write an article, it takes me like days and days and days. So I know you had to probably work up to that, but I know I have so many people who either are writers listening or who may wanna be do that as a side hustle. So how did you go from writing about zombies and what was your skill set at that point to where you are now, where you can like knock out three articles in a day and probably get paid? A lot of money to do it.
1: <laughs> so I think I had the advantage of of teaching, like you mentioned earlier in the interviews, that there's so many skills that are transferable. And for anyone out there who's not a teacher, whatever you're doing right now, whatever job, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or you're at a nine-to-five, there are skills that you can transfer into any any job, any profession. And so when I first started writing, it really was thinking about like what's the point of this article or, or what am i trying to say or what does the editor want me to say and so i just i just kind of thought through the lens of like a teaching lesson or a lesson plan so let's say for example i'm writing about a credit card so what's the point of the credit card the cre- point of it is to give someone the features and benefits and then talk about who's best suited for it that's the point of the article and so when i think of it from that mindset then it becomes a little bit easier to to draw an outline in terms of how I can do it so fast now, part of it is because I write about the same topics over and over again. And so when an editor comes to me and say, Sarah, I want this and this, I go, OK, I know exactly what I need to say. I already have the facts, general facts, because I, I write it so much. And I'm just a fast typer like that. <laughs> I don't know that this might be like showing my age, but my mom used to force me and my sister to sit in front of the computer and type Mavis Bacon, like the Mavis Bacon program. I don't know if anybody knows this back in the 90s. And so that was something that my mom thought was like a very valuable skill, which like, thank you mom for that because we were forced to type for hours, <laughs> like really, really fast. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I
0: had a typing in high school. I also had a typing class where, you know, they covered the keyboard and you had to like learn to type without looking and those things like are very helpful nowadays. So at what point did you say, okay, I'm just taking writing from just this is fun to wait, this can actually be something and I can earn a lot of money doing this.
1: I'd say this was like, maybe a little bit after my son was born. And it was really from looking at personal finance writers who were just killing it in the space and other freelance writers who were just killing in the space. And like, I remember just being sleep deprived. I'm like, Oh my gosh, how am I going to go back to teaching and, and deal with like a little infant and, and all of those things. And so just reading stories of other women who, who did it, like who were a- earning decent money they they weren't all earning six figures but that's again an arbitrary number but they were like motivated to stay at home have a more flexible schedule and just work on their own terms and that really pushed me and so what really ended up getting me into personal finance was number 1 I'll be honest it it paid well and so I was chasing the money there's nothing wrong with that when you're starting out as a as a business owner you just want the cash flow right so and number 2, I was moving to the US and I'm like I have no clue like what investment things I need to be looking at, what kind of bank accounts I need. Like yes, I'm Canadian and things are very similar, but there's things that are also super different. Like one of the things that I talk very openly now is that I had to start over from scratch with my credit. Just because I had excellent credit in Canada didn't mean that it translate over to the US. And so it was such a learning curve to figure that stuff out. And so I thought, okay, you know what, if this industry is in demand, like people need writers, and I have to learn about this stuff anyways, like why not get paid to learn it?
0: Okay. And so what were some of the things that you did to grow your business, right? To get from that point of I really don't know much, like, how did you start getting your first writing gigs and improve your craft to be where you are today?
1: What I did to go from just generally freelancing, any type of articles to finance was I looked at anything I wrote that had to do with money. And so I remember writing an article about PayPal for a client months ago, and I thought, okay, I can write about PayPal. I can certainly write about bank accounts. They kind of relate, right? And so I would just use that piece as a portfolio of sorts to email clients. And so I would just research like what companies would I think would look for freelance writers and so I mean I pitched gosh at that I remember even before moving to the US I pitched like thousands and thousands of companies like sometimes I would call in the middle of the night for bigger companies I would just email and you're going to get a lot of nos and you're going to get a lot of people ignoring you which is exactly what happened to me but then there's some people that are like okay I'll take a chance on you there were some points where I would email companies and say hey listen I'm a really good writer I just don't have industry experience but I'm willing to write you an article for free just to show you that I have the skills. I don't recommend that for everybody, but that's really what I felt like I had to do just to break in. Because again, I wasn't like a US resident at that point. Like I, there was, I felt like there was like no proof <laughs> that I could do this. And so some bigger companies would take a chance on me and they loved what I did and then they became regular clients. And so as I got more pieces of writing under my belt, I would then pitch bigger companies. So it's kind of like find the low-hanging fruit, then find a bigger company. And then once I have a good roster of clients or even one big name, like a national brand, let's say Credit Karma. Like, okay, now I write for Credit Karma. They obviously have standards. I can now go to another client and be like, hey, I write for Credit Karma. And immediately my reputation is much better than what it would been before. And so I just kept thinking, like, what are things that clients would want to see in an email from a freelance writer that would compel them to hire me? And so that's, that's just what I kept doing. I also tweaked my emails, I tested emails to make sure that people would open them, and then reply, even if it's a yes or no, I just, like, as long as you reply to my email, I'm happy, because then I can at least learn, like, why did you say no or why am I not the right fit? And then keep going from there.
0: And when it came to reaching out, so this is getting a little, you know, more detailed, but just who did you reach out to in the company? Like the marketing content manager. Cause the thing about finance, and I know some people, maybe they're not interested in writing with finance in particular, but the cool thing is that there are so many now companies, big companies, banks, just institutions that have blogs and want to get more content out there to their audience, like to speak to them versus just like, a sales page. How do you know who to reach out to and which companies would be open to that?
1: It depends on the company, but generally speaking, most of the companies do have budget to pay freelancers would be a marketing director, vice president of communications or or something that's similar. I remember reaching out to a director of communications and he replied very quickly and I got a contract with them. So anybody that's marketing or communications if you're looking at working with like a writing agency or a marketing agency, sometimes you can also email the creative director. What you can do too is if you're not sure, pick somebody you think is the decision maker that's going to hire you, write your email, whatever you want to do to kind of beef up your how awesome you are. And then just write the end, like if you're not the right person to talk to, who is? And most of the time, if they really like what you wrote and they think that there's a need for you, they will forward your email to the right person, which which has happened to me a few times. Like I've emailed an editor I thought that was going to hire me, but they're like, oh, I'm actually not in this department. Let me forward you to someone else. And then I started the conversation like that. Mm.
0: Okay. And then I know part of this, and this goes for anyone, whether you're a writer or not, but part of what comes along with being a freelancer or entrepreneur is now you set your prices and you have to start negotiating and knowing your worth, or at least inching up to being confident to say what you think you're worth. So let's kind of talk through that and some skills, because I know that's something that you've improved upon vastly, right? Like, so the fact that it's not even the end of the year yet, you've already grossed over six figures just with your writing. How does one start thinking about, okay, I have this skill, you know, maybe I have a little experience, maybe I have some opportunities, how do they go about negotiating and getting more money for the things that they do?
1: One of the best things that I've ever done in my freelance career is actually surround myself with other freelance writers. And it's great to talk to everybody from all walks of life and different kinds of experiences. But you also want ones that are at a similar level as you or maybe a little bit further along that may be right in the same industry. And that's because they may end up writing for the same clients you are or they're writing for clients that you want to write for. And if you can build that trust and relationship, I mean, there's a lot, obviously you need some give and take in that. Then you can go, okay, this client wants X, Y, Z for me. I'm really not sure what to charge. What has been your experience? And so I've just had a lot of these really frank conversations with so many freelance writers over the years where they're like, okay, this is what I got paid, but this is this is a type of work that I've done. And so you can make an assessment on whether you can charge more or less or okay, this client's not worth it, depending on what they say. There are lots of websites, and I can't think of any in the top of my head. I think there's one called wheretopitch.com. I think that's the only one I know right now. But if you do a Google search, there are lots of databases where you can actually find anonymous or people who post anonymously in these databases as to the outlet or publication or website that they wrote for and how much they actually got paid. Sometimes you can even get insight into like if they're timely or sometimes if the editor's kind of a pain in the butt or, you know, really good to work with. And so just talk to people as much as you can. And something else, it's funny, this came out in a Twitter thread where this freelancer was like talking about, oh, I don't have lack of, I have lack of experience. I can't charge as much. Here's what I say. Don't let a lack of experience make you believe that you can charge less your client does not know how much experience you have right yes you may not have a beefy portfolio but there's other ways to showcase your skills i started out freelance writing as a textbook writer and i was so intimidated that i leaned into my teaching skills i basically said i've have almost 10 years of teaching experience you need someone to write esl books you want somebody from the perspective of a teacher who is going to use your books like don't you want someone who who knows how to use these books in order to write that and that's how i got my one of my first gigs like one of my first corporate gigs i was just writing blogs with zombies at that point (laughs) right If you think about it but yeah right but i use those writing pieces to say i can write pretty well i've worked with an editor and the number two i've got my industry experience so really consider if you're trying to raise your rates like what are some skills that you can bring to the table i'll name another example so there was a blog that ended up laying off most of its freelance writers. And so I was like, okay, what do I have to lose if, if he says no to my requests? And so what I did was I said, Hey, I think part of the reason why you're not getting much traction is that you're not interviewing people in, in your industry. I think if you get that, those people will share your interviews. It will make your site seem more of an authority and more traffic will come, etc. And then I said, Hey, this is one of my skills. I, I specialize in this. And because it requires more time and research, I gave him or I offered to do it for double what he was paying me right now. And so he said, yes.
0: Wait, so let's step back. So this this site, they were looking for a writer. They had laid off a lot of writers, but they still needed someone to write.
1: Yeah. So I was already writing for them, but they were they were going to like just let go of everybody. And so I was going to be let go. And so I thought, what do I have to lose? Like, I'm going to be let go anyways. And so it ended up being that because I presented him with how to basically help him make money. And I was able to double what I was charging him initially.
0: And I think, again, this kind of stuff is kind of relate to any industry, even if you have no care about being a writer, just in general. So no matter whether it's a certain career path or something you want to get into, like making friends in that industry to understand what the rate is. I remember the first time I learned how much some people in this space were getting paid to be on panels or speak, you know, where I was like, just happy to get invited. I was like, are you serious? You know, like, that's amazing. And that's when I started realizing the possibilities for me. And if they can do that, why not me? And so it's really helpful to join if there's like some industry events and just networking in person, which is why I always say FinCon, was so great because I got to meet so many people in person that one made me realize that this was possible. So that's a huge thing, right? To see that something is possible and to network with other people, but then to understand, okay, what are the actual ways people are making money? What are the rates? It's really helpful. And then the other thing that you mentioned, I think what anyone needs to do, whether you're in corporate America, you're looking at advancing your career, making more money is pulling out what you do well. So getting this position of not necessarily just from like experience, because you could be applying for a job in a different industry in a different type, totally different, right? You can go from zombie writing to like credit cards, right? But it's not the topic. It's not the actual thing that you are marketing. You're showing how you can increase open rates on something, or you can increase productivity. You can, you you show exactly what the outcome is, regardless of the topic or industry. And that's the kind of That's the kind of stuff that gets you ahead um, in any career path that you have.
1: Yeah, I do want to add, yes, what I'm saying does apply to any industry or any career path. Something I do want to add is make sure that when you're thinking about the skills that you have, like how does it actually benefit the person that you're going to be working for? Writing with zombies, fine, it's a skill, but is it really going to benefit someone in the textbook industry? No. What does? It's the actual concise writing that I am able to do, right? teaching itself isn't necessarily a skill that might be monetized, but it's the ability to take my experience to a textbook company, to be able to give them a nice insight into what a teacher would want in a book. That's a skill. Because I know I get really intimidated. Like I don't sound like I, I do, but I get very intimidated when I pitch bigger companies because I feel like, oh, what do I have to offer? Like, not easy, but try to remove your worth from your work and your skills. That's how I've been able to really pitch bigger companies, like LendingTree is a company I write for. I mean, I remember being so intimidated thinking about like, there's such a big website. But I go, no, my skill is this, this and this. I have written about this, this and this. I'm going to apply because based on this, not because of who I am as a person, but who I am as a writer, as a researcher, as a fact checker.
0: Mm -hmm. And that's how that like. Shift in the mentality and how, in perspective of how you look at things. I just interviewed someone and they talked about at first, like a year ago, it was like, oh, like you want you want me to do it, and like so it was more just like feeling grateful for the opportunity. Versus her mind shift has been, and now she makes ten times more is because it's like you know I have this skill set and you need this skill set, and here's what I can provide for you. And this is just anyone, right? This is just even as a business owner or myself, right? Like if I'm offering a product or a service to someone. Not looking at it like they're giving, doing me a favor by paying me. Right. And I think so many of us look at that, like, look, look at it like that. But the switch becomes, yeah, you give it, it's an exchange, right? Of money for what I'm providing you. But it's not that I'm thankful to you for, you know, you, thank you so much for giving me the money to make me help you. It's more of like, this is a gift. This is something that I'm giving to you because the value of what I'm providing you is so much more than maybe the money, the monetary, um, that I'm, I'm getting. Right. So it's, it's really just a switch in your perspective. All right. One of the things you do talk about a lot. So you have a podcast and you approach it more from just a holistic view of money. So I definitely want to like talk about that a bit, because that's how I like approaching money, that it's getting the spiritual, mental and physical part of it together. It's a complete journey. And I'd like to just get your thoughts on how people can, yes, the money is important, but realizing that all the other things in our lives, like our mental health, spiritual, just whatever it is, it's gonna fuel our ability to earn, make, and like receive money. So how you're doing that in your life and any tips for people who wanna be better on this journey holistically.
1: Yes, gosh, I remember I read this in a book. I think it was called Happy Money by Ken Hanna. And it was like one sentence that totally blew my mind where he basically says, having money or being good with money is to help you be more in the present moment. And I thought that is so interesting. And if you think about it, what do we worry a lot about when it comes to money? Our anxiety stem from like the future. Like, do we have enough to retire? Do we have enough to pay for X, Y, and Z? Am I going to lose my job if I don't brush up on my skills? Or it could be something in the past. Like I am so ashamed of this debt I accumulated. I suck, et cetera, et cetera. But having a good, solid financial foundation helps you be in the present moment because then you're not worried about the future. You're not shaming yourself about the past. You're really just focusing on what you want to do right now to feel happy, to feel connected with the people around you, maybe your purpose, your work. And if you think about it, that's all of us. All of us want that. All of us want to be happy at the end of the day, whatever that looks like. Like I'm really obsessed with fermenting foods like that is my way of like <laughs> that's your happy place that's my happy place that's like that's my way of being like hey i'm done writing my three articles for the day i can spend the rest of my days like just hiding out in my kitchen and making kimchi right like that's my thing maybe for someone else it's knowing that they can buy a disney cruise for their mother and not have to worry about putting on a credit card whatever that is it's just really staying in that present moment and using spiritual tactics mental health strategies, or even just being really mindful of your physical health, all of those things help you stay in that present moment where you're not freaking out about how you're going to pay off your credit card bill, or again, worrying about all the past decisions that you made or or things like that. So yes, it's woo woo. And I know your audience loves a woo woo. But that's really how I'm approaching it is like, if I want to feel like I'm connected to the world around me right now, and that's ultimately what we want to use money for. Then I got to find some way to alleviate some of those stress and the worry around it. And so I meditate a lot. I read a lot of Buddhist books. I just find that, that a lot of the, the Buddhist teachings really help me to stay present. And again, that might not be for you, but you, you can find some other ways. Maybe you want to read the Bible. Maybe you, you want to go to the synagogue, whatever it is. And in terms of physical health, I just feel really when I feel really good in my body, I just feel really good overall. Something I do now is I I bike a lot. Um, I I take my son to preschool on my bike anyway. So that's something I I do. And it takes care of my physical health. And I just make sure to eat really well.
0: It's really investing time, energy, and sometimes money in these other areas of your life, not directly finance related, but it does. It it impacts your finances and impacts your ability to be confident, happy in this world where you're asking your boss or a client or someone um, or negotiating for money or a deal that you can do that, or just showing up in this world differently when you have all those areas of your life improve. And you're not going to do it overnight, right? Like there's so many of us, especially as a mom. So I know, your fellow mom. And I know for a long time, you also had your son at home with you while you were writing and working before he went to preschool. And so I think as moms, it's it's easy to put yourself on the back burner. And some of that is like, it's a, it's like the season of like life. And maybe in some areas that, that will happen more often and times than later on, right? When they're in school for part of the day. So you can take an hour to just yourself, not to work, not to anything, but to meditate, to pray, whatever that looks like for you. So I do encourage, depending on where you are, to be kind to yourself because, yeah, maybe you don't have all the time in the world yet, but you can find five or 10 minutes to do something that will improve something in your life.
1: And something I'm sure that your listeners really think about, and I know this is a question for me constantly, is how do you find balance between work, family, yourself, and other things? And Something that has really, really helped me is just test my assumptions on everything. And so I used to have this really rigid morning routine. Like I wake up at five, I do yoga, I drink my green tea, I meditate, I do my morning pages. Like a long list of like what I'm gonna do before my son wakes up because I want to feel relaxed, right? And so I started noticing that I wasn't. I was so stressed out throughout the day, and I'm like, what is going on? This clearly isn't working. And I realized that something that will help alleviate that stress is if I find some task, like work-related tasks, whether it's the podcast or my freelance writing, that I just can cross it off and that'll make me feel better. What I've been playing around with is actually writing articles in the morning before my son wakes up, or at least doing a little bit of research or setting up some admin stuff for the podcast, anything like that. I also you know, meditate and, and have my green tea and things like that. So I had to really test my assumptions on like what a perfect morning routine looks like because you can Google it. Here's this like top performance athlete dude who does this and this and this. It doesn't work for me. Right. It sucks having to write an article about things that I'm not terribly passionate about. But if it helps me take off an hour in the middle of the day to take my son to Chick-fil-A, like so be it if that makes me feel relaxed. So the concept of balance, it, it can look different to everyone. So test your assumptions about what that's gonna look like in your life.
0: Mm-hmm. I love test your assumptions and because you'll see a lot of prescriptive things to do. And some of that is because it's, it mostly works, right? Like wake up in the morning, no no phone, or it's all about you and meditating all yourself and all those things. But sometimes that doesn't work for everybody, like you're saying. And so try different things. If you're trying something, but it's giving you more anxiety or you can't do it and not like from anxiety. So one of the things I stopped doing which has been really helpful, but it's been hard. It's like, I used to go to this gossip site. Yes, I know. And I sp- spent a lot of my time just like, and not a lot, right? Cause not, I don't have that much time to waste, but I did spend some time like perusing these forums. And then I started telling myself, this is impacting mentally, like some of the things that I'm like, how I'm feeling about certain things. And so it's been a struggle, but I haven't gone on it for like a whole like, week. And by the time this comes out, it'd be months, right? So I'm so excited about that. And it was hard, right? I found myself like, oh, I wonder what's going, I wonder what's going on with this person today. Like, you know, like all this stupidness, but mindless things that kind of like take the edge off. But for me, I realized that that was preventing me from reaching some of my goals. And so if you have something that's going on that you're like, you know, it's preventing you from reaching a goal and or, you know, you should be doing more of test it out, test the assumptions, try it for a week, don't try it for a week. This is all i be I would say this is all just a big test. (laughs) Life is just a big, and you don't have to do exactly what someone else is doing. You can figure out how to pick and choose what's going to be worth it on your journey to implement.
1: Exactly. And if you want to think about it in terms of your financial independence journey, test your assumptions what that's going to look like as well. So something my husband and I came to grips with was we don't have to work for 10 years and then just flat out retire. That's what our original goal was to like, just get our investments in order, whatever. And then he can quit his job. I can scale back on what I'm doing now. We tested that assumption and we're actually accelerating our FI journey by eight years because we are looking at semi-retirement. So it's a different form of financial independence, but it's something that we're very excited about. It's going to work just as well as what we were achieving for with the the 10-year plan anyways. And so we're going to try that. If it, Crashes and burns, one of us or both of us can go back to a job, whatever we need to do. And so we're both very excited about that.
0: Okay. So let's talk a little bit about that because, you know, this is a platform based on helping people reach financial independence and freedom. And I always love showing the possibilities. So can you just quickly go through what that plan looks like for you and how you're going to reach that goal?
1: Sure. So we have a certain number we want to have in our investments. And Right now, that's going to be $400,000. We just want to make sure we have $400,000. It's an arbitrary number at the end of the day because both my husband and I were just talking about this the other week about what number are we going to feel safe? And that, that's really what we based it off. Like We feel safe at 400000 because if we don't touch it, it'll compound to whatever amount in 20 some odd years. What number will we feel safe in terms of how much we still own the mortgage? And so we're, we're still working that number out. In terms of how much we still owe on a mortgage by the time we semi-retire, like where we feel like, okay, we're managing this. What that's going to look like is my husband will probably just look for something that's either part-time or it's remote or maybe substitute teaching instead of just full-time teaching. That's something that he's figuring out in terms of, of my semi-retirement. I'm probably just going to scale back on, on a lot of client work and focus a lot more on the podcast I haven't really figured that out yet. It's still, again, a work in progress, but it's really one of those where how it looks like for us is like, as long as we have that amount of money in our investments, where if we have to dip into it, we can, but we're we're gonna not, we just, whatever income we make in our semi-retirement phase is gonna be the money that we're gonna be using.
0: Right, right, and yeah, and I have a similar strategy right now, and I can speak to that where, while I am pursuing entrepreneurship and I should stop saying pursuing, I'm doing it. While I am running my business (laughs) full-time, but gearing up. So getting it to be profitable and consistent is that we have our our money on autopilot at this point. And the plan is, and it was actually never, even if we were to reach the financial independence goals that we've set by the time we're 40, it was never to have to touch that. It was to be able to reduce, pay off our mortgage, reduce our expenses and spend the way we wanna spend and then to essentially like live off of whatever comes in, but then have our money grow, right? But then choose. So my husband, he's a teacher, so he wouldn't necessarily maybe have to work summer school, all that extra stuff. If he didn't want to, we can travel more, we can do more things to enjoy our time. So I love that. I love that you guys have baked that in and made it something where that is more achievable sooner rather than later.
1: Again, when I read that phrase about having a good financial foundation is to help you be in the present moment. I thought 10 years is like a lot, it's far away. And if you think about it, the future is not owed to us, right? We we can plan for it, but it's not owed to us. And so what decision do I want to make now that I'm, it's going to help me achieve it, the present moment a lot sooner? And two years is way, way sooner than 10 years.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. And I mean, and, and then to be mindful that, you've set yourself up to be able to do that in two years, right? So your journey has started a while ago. So some people might just be just coming to this journey. And so they have some things they need to do first, but to know that you can, you don't have to wait till 55, 60. Even if your retirement, your financial independence goal is 15 years out. Like there are certain things you can do five years out based on starting this journey that will blow your mind and give you more freedom and possibilities. Exactly. Okay, so Sarah, please let everyone know where they can find you and keep in contact with you.
1: Sure. So the best way to find me is through my podcast website, which is beyondthedollar.co, not .com. Because if you go to beyondthedollar.com, you're going to unfortunately go to a spammy website. Don't want to get too much into that. But so beyondthedollar.co. If you like Instagram as much as I do, get over there and my username is beyondthedollar.
0: Okay. And I will tag all that in the show notes. And you have a podcast. What's your podcast?
1: Yeah. So the podcast is Beyond the Dollar. So on that one, I focus a lot on real life stories. So it can be a real life transition or what someone's going through. I do try to get a lot of behind the scenes of of real life stories of entrepreneurs who maybe make a million dollars, but they lost a hundred thousand dollars and how they're managing all of that.
0: Right. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much, Sarah. I enjoyed this conversation. Thanks, Javila. Okay, I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Sarah Lee Kane. Again, if you want the episode show notes, you want links to find out more about Sarah, you want links to the other episodes that I mentioned earlier on in this episode, go to journeytolaunch.com slash episode 142. There you'll get all the links. Now, if you are enjoying this podcast, so you can listen to this podcast in numerous ways. You may be listening to right now on maybe the website, maybe on your Apple phone, So if that's the case, great. What you can do to make sure that you don't miss an episode so you don't have to go looking for it is to subscribe wherever you listen. Subscribing is completely free. This podcast is free for you to consume and to use as motivation and inspiration on your journey. So once you subscribe, whatever method you use to listen, you'll get automatic episodes downloaded to your phone or your device. Now, if you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, that's that purple app on your phone, I always have to say that because I get people who come up to me and say, thank God that you keep saying purple app because I literally had no clue what that purple app was or that it was even allow me to listen to podcasts. So I keep saying that because I want anyone who maybe does not understand like what Apple Podcasts is where they can listen. But listen, if you don't even listen to an Apple Podcasts, totally fine. That's okay, too. Continue to listen and continue to share this with your family and friends. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. Now, until next week, keep on journeying, journeyers.